Hello, and thank you for joining me for today's episode of Big Ideas in Eating Disorders. In this series, we hear from people in the field of eating disorders who share with us their personal and professional experiences, reflections, uh, and big ideas that never quite get represented in this way in the academic publications and conferences. I'm Kathy Pike, clinical psychologist and professor in the Department of Psychiatry and School of Public Health at Columbia University, Irving Medical Center, and I am delighted to be joined today by Dr. Joel Yeager. Dr. Yeager is Professor Emeritus at the University of Colorado School of Medicine, also in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science at University of New Mexico, and at UCLA Department of Psychiatry and Biobehavioral Sciences. So Dr. Yeager has an enormous wealth of experience, has been a pioneer in the field of eating disorders, has earned many awards and recognitions, including Lifetime Achievement Awards in the uh, field of eating disorders specifically and in education and psychiatry from National Eating Disorders Association, NIDA, uh, also the Association of Academic Psychiatry, and many others. Uh, it is really a pleasure to have you join us today, Joel. Thank you for taking the time. Pleasure to be here, Kathy. So we're going to get started sort of at the beginning with the how you, growing up years, how did you get to psychiatry? And then we'll move on to how did you get to eating disorders? But how did you get to psychiatry? Very briefly. When I was in college, I was a freshman at the age of 16, and I went through a what do I want to do with my life. I started out as a chemical engineering major because I loved chemistry and um, found that it just didn't suit my personality to be an engineer and became a music major because that's the other part of my growing up. So I was a sort of a jazz and bar mitzvah musician in New York City, but that wasn't going to be a serious life. And so I said, I have to understand my own mind. I'll become a psychologist. And my uncle George said, why don't you go to medical school, become a psychiatrist? You'll know the brain and the mind and you'll make a decent living. So (laughs) it worked out. I I went home and I said to my mother and father, I'm gonna become a psychiatrist. They said, you can't stand the sight of blood. I said, I'll take it and went to medical school, loved it and have, had the best career I think anybody can. So psychiatry was the right career for me. You mentioned you started your college career at the age of 16. Yes, that was a lot loud in New York City. That's early, right? Yes. Um, In New York City, there were uh, all all kinds of ways to advance. And that was not that unusual. It would kind of go through the SPs, the special progress things, and be promoted and so forth. And it worked out that we, um, my birthday is June 27th, so mm-hmm. I started, I, I graduated from high school at 15, started college at 16. Okay, so you're 16, you're in college, and the interest in psychiatry develops. You decide you're not going to be an engineer, musician, music isn't going to, playing the bar mitzvah gigs isn't going to pay right. the bills. And so you decide to pursue psychiatry. So you must have been young when you started medical school, too, in psychiatry. I was um, 20 mm-hmm. when I medical school and um, at Albert Einstein, which uh-huh. was a phenomenal medical school. And uh-huh. uh, 
very rich in psychiatry and psychosomatic medicine, which mm -hmm. is part of the story of eating disorders. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, I trained uh, under somebody named Herbert Weiner, who was mm -hmm. a professor, who's also Tim Walsh's mentor. That's right. And Tim was just a couple of years behind me, I think. And uh -huh. um, at Montefiore in those days, it was one of the early studies of anorexia nervosa and its physiology. And I think Herb and Mort Reiser, who was the chair, chief of the department then, influenced a lot of us to think about psychosomatic medicine, the mind and the body together. And in eating disorders, and certainly anorexia nervosa, is a paradigmatic kind of a problem in that direction. So I think their uh, influence certainly um, shaped some of my interests, as they did Tim's. Mm -hmm. That's right. Actually, in the episode with Tim, in our discussion with my discussion with Dr. Walsh, he mentioned that exact tra uh, training tra trajectory and the influence of Dr. Weiner on his career yeah. Yeah, and shaping his thinking and career. So these are early days in the field mm -hmm. of eating disorders. What in this department of psychosomatic medicine, uh, what were people studying when it came to eating disorders and what were current ideas? No, they were looking at some endocrine issues because the group at Montefiore had a lot of endocrine labs going and stress and cortisol and sort of the mm -hmm. early things about what happens in starvation. Um, I think some of the uh, earlier thinking at that point were sort of nouveau uh, sort of revisionist psychoanalytic thinking about the body. And a lot of that came out of Colombia. Mm -hmm. Actually, some of the early analysts were working at Columbia and talking about self-objects and some object relation things and uh, certainly gender identity and what it means to be a woman and perfectionism and those kinds of things. Looking at the developmental issues, mm -hmm. uh, at the same time in Philadelphia, you had the beginning of family thinking about anorexia nervosa um, mm -hmm. and uh, some models that came out of that school and a couple of early people in England who were mm -hmm. thinking about anorexia nervosa, um, the Maudsley at some of the other hospitals in England. So those were, there were maybe three or four big thinkers in anorexia nervosa at that time, and everybody re recognized their ignorance. I mean, they mm -hmm. And that was not a passion of mine. I really didn't get into anorexia nervosa or eating disorders really until the mid-1970s, after I graduated from residency, I went into the army, got into, was doing PTSD studies with combat veterans coming out of Vietnam. I was at, on faculty at UC San Diego for two years and then wound up at UCLA. Mm -hmm. And it was at UCLA in West Los Angeles um, when my, and I was the residency director and um, just doing a lot of teaching and residents came and said, we're seeing these women from West Los Angeles and Bel Air and Brentwood who have eating disorders, what do we do with them? And I mm -hmm. said, we're clueless. We don't know anything about this group. Uh, we had some child psychiatrists and psychologists in the department who were interested in anorexia nervosa and had a childhood eating disorder program. Denny Cantwell was a brilliant child psychiatrist. 
And Mike Strober was a psychology intern in the program uh -huh. in those days. So he started to work with Denny and they put together a child division uh -huh. eating disorder program. I'm in the adult division and we're seeing women in their 20s, 30s, 40s who are coming in. And I say to the residents, we have not an idea about what's going on here. Let's put them in a group and they'll teach us. Mm -hmm. So I started about two or three groups, discussion groups, support groups of women with anorexia nervosa. And I said, what's going on with you? What do you have? And they started to tell us and they had fantasies, they had families, they had kids, they had troubles. And we got our heads around it. And I said, we need a clinic. So we started an eating disorder clinic with protocols and started to collect some data and said, we'll try to understand what this is all about. And so thanks to my residents, I got into eating disorders. Very interesting. And thanks to the, the way the department was set up, my focus was really on adults with eating disorders rather than the younger kids and adolescents. So I was looking less at the early development, although I certainly saw a lot of that, and more at the sequelae and what it was like for women who had been wrestling with this for a decade or two decades. And mm -hmm. that's how we got into the big idea. Mm -hmm. Terrific. So you stayed at the work of uh, treatment, really engaging clinically and developing treatment models for mostly women. Was your unit only women at the time? No, we had, we had the male patients too. I mean, there weren't that many right. uh, compared to women, but I certainly saw my uh, share of adolescents and adults. So you've got mostly women, some men, you're treating adults. So individuals who tended to have the, have anorexia nervosa, have the disorder for an extended period of time mm -hmm. and contributing to building our knowledge base around treatment interventions. And and really the evolution of those models over the course of decades. Yes. What are a few cases that stand out for you that contribute to your current thinking today? Uh, several. And interestingly, a number of them were physicians. I think when you start to work in sort of high, highly specialized areas and you're in a big university and you're in a big urban university, uh, referrals that come to you tend to be of people who have had experience with this. And you see a lot of physicians and their families. And these are people who are thoughtful, who have had the access to good care all around the country, who have been to this program and that program and have spoken to this specialist and that specialist. And they've tried it and they've, they know the science. They, they're, they're discriminating consumers of medical care mm -hmm. and they do what they can. And for the most part, they want to get better and mm -hmm. they'll do what they can to get better and they'll try whatever is out there. Mm -hmm. And so I've had patients like this. This one male physician I started to talk about a moment ago um, had been to maybe four or five different treatment programs nationally, the best of the best. I mean, you name if I were to ask you, where would you send somebody you cared about who mm -hmm. could afford it? You would tell me five or 10 pr programs. He was at least at three or four of those. 
Mm-hmm. And by the time we worked together, again, I had um, we had arranged for hospitalization for him to try to get back. He had been around the merry-go-round several, several times. And he finally said, I can't do this anymore. I'm quite mm-hmm. it. I said, what are you talking about? He said, you know what? Um, I try to control my thoughts. You're doing the best you can. Medication, nutritional, CBT, psycho, talking to my family, you're doing everything that can be done. It isn't enough. It's not working. Whatever is inside of me is tearing me up. And uh, he said, I really don't want to kill myself, but it's on my mind a lot. I, but I can't struggle anymore and, and stop forcing me. I, he said, he said you do, you're doing it with the best of intentions. You have a good heart. I know that you're doing this. I, I can't do this anymore. I said, I'll, I'll speak with you and kind of just, we'll see what happens. He said, you know what? Fine. And, and we did that for a few months. And he said, this isn't working. Nothing, nothing is helping. I'm going to go home. And he went home and stayed with his older parents, his elderly parents, who knew what was going on. And I kept on the phone with him and we talked every once in a while. He just curled up and died. Mm-hmm. He just couldn't maintain his nutrition. He said, I've had it. And he said, don't, don't force me. Don't mm-hmm. humiliate me. Mm-hmm. And it would have been the wrong thing to do. Mm-hmm. And that was what I started to realize that there were some whose really chronic struggle with anorexia nervosa, despite everything we currently know how to do. And I kept offering him and keep offering all of my patients anything that's new and novel and exciting. You want ketamine, you want mushrooms, you want psilocybin. What else can we do to sort of shake up this awful kind of thing inside of you? And many of them will say, I'm willing to try anything. And many of them try anything and then find it hasn't done it. And they say, I tried it. Thank you. I can't do this anymore. And it's when I, when I hear that, I can't do this anymore. And I, I still, in my heart, don't say, okay, go and die. I'll say, I'll be with you. Let me just, let's keep talking. Let's keep having conversation. Let's keep working at it. That's mm-hmm. palliative care. Right. So palliative care is working with somebody defining their goals of care and, and, and appreciating the fact that not everybody with anorexia nervosa has bad judgment. These people have really, they're thoughtful about what they are struggling with. Mm-hmm. And it's within that conversation that I came to the big idea, if you will, this conclusion, which is really as ancient as anything in medicine, that there are some people who need palliative care mm-hmm. in, the, in, the, in their course of dealing with anorexia nervosa. If they have been around a lot of treatment, tried, mean well, and whatever this awful, awful, awful chronic disease is that doesn't let go of their brain and their mind, despite what we know how to do, and mm-hmm. they're getting everything in evidence-based medicine, evidence-based pharmacology, evidence-based neuromodulation, whatever is accessible. I haven't personally sent people for deep brain stimulation. We have, a, we have in our department now deep brain stimulation, and 
one patient with anorexia nervosa has exceeded the habit, I'm not impressed with the results. Joel, I'm wondering if we could dig in a little bit around this term of palliative care, because uh, I've been part of a number of studies where we've focused on harm reduction, right? A harm reduction, which is not exactly palliative care, but essentially driven by the same principle of quality of life and patient-driven definition of what matters and what interventions should be provided to enhance quality of life with the idea of quote unquote cure being secondary to caring for this individual and what how they define what quality of life would be. What you have just described is what I would understand palliative care to be. Right. You know, decades ago, Josie Geller and at British Columbia had developed this community outreach program where they came to basically the same idea. That, that is, after a while, there were some patients with chronic, chronic, chronic eating disorders who couldn't be subjected anymore or wouldn't subject themselves to recovery because they felt like they were being beaten to death by trying to reach and maintain unsustainable weight gain. Mm-hmm. And what Josie and the group said was, we're going to do harm reduction. Mm-hmm. We're going to do psychosocial rehabilitation. That is, we'll give you whatever you can to enhance your quality of life. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have a discussion about medical safety so that we'll, we'll determine with you certain parameters. If you if you wait fall into best, you don't want to die, we'll have to get you into the hospital for medical stabilization. And that was the program. Those that, that was the, the three arms. Mm-hmm. Basically, those are the ideas with which I've been operating. And you just come to it on your own separately. There are patients who say, once you do that kind of a work with me, I get better mm-hmm. because they aren't right. fighting you. They aren't fighting the system. They aren't feeling humiliated and shamed and defeated and disappointed mm-hmm. and it's you're working with where they want to be rather mm-hmm. than where you would like them to be because you're insisting on recovery right. so once you get rid of the idea of recovery as a goal and you mm-hmm. say what do you need in life people get better mm-hmm. so i have one patient another notable patient who i've worked with for a couple of decades she's in new mexico and she had been ill for at least 15, 20 years. Mm-hmm. Early onset, a binge purge anorexia nervosa. We worked, we did her better, 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 worse, better. She was to every eating disorder program in the country that you would want your kid to go to. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't do well. And she said, I'm getting physically ill. She was getting worse and worse in terms of um, skeletal problems and muscular problems and so forth. And I, I said, all right. She said, I think I need just to be left alone for a while. I said, I'll leave you alone, but we're going to talk. So we maintained our relationship and she got into palliative care. She thought she was going to die. Her family thought she was going to die. They arranged ultimately for hospice for her. And 
they had to talk palliative care physicians even into qualifying her for hospice care because no palliative care physician had ever heard about it. Mm-hmm. You don't give hospice care to somebody with anorexia nervosa. Mm-hmm. She was on hospice care for four or five months, six months. She starts to get better. Mm-hmm. And she gets better. And her strength starts coming back. Mm-hmm. And all they're doing is being nice to her. Mm-hmm. And, then, and, and treating her symptomatically and taking care of her. And she graduates from college. And she's getting, getting better and better and better. And she meets a guy. And she's getting better and better. And she has a life now, and she has, this is maybe three, four years later, and she emerged. So mm-hmm. taking the pressure off helped her to improve in ways that I don't think anybody would have predicted. And there are, I've worked with several patients like that, mm-hmm. who, where whom the, this palliative care setting, goals of care, that's what palliative care is about. I talk with you about your goals of care. So what you're saying is patients, if we listen carefully, right, if we uh, step back and listen and don't think we know it all, that patients will actually be able to share tremendous wisdom and insight and know what they need and want. And that, in fact, enabling patients to creating space um, where patients are able to set their treatment goals is a principle of palliative care that in the case of anorexia nervosa, I have seen it myself, as you described, creates space where over time, actually individuals not only improve quality of life on all kinds of measures, but also have greater recovery from the eating disorder. So it's an it's Absolutely. a it's, profound it's a process of honoring and respecting your patient. So going from palliative care to this idea of terminal anorexia nervosa, and that has to do with tell me hospice. tell me how what your thinking is on sure. that. Um, first thing, it is a really small number of patients. So nobody should get the idea that everybody with anorexia nervosa is going to wind up there. It's not. It's going to be handfuls of, of patients. People are afraid, oh my God, everybody's going to want um, medical-assisted suicide, medical-assisted death, MAID. When you look at the history of MAID, where it's been legal in the Netherlands, in Belgium, Switzerland, and you say, how many patients with anorexia nervosa have actually accessed that? Maybe a dozen over 20 years? In, the, in all of those countries, I mean, it's it's trivial. It's a red herring. It's mm-hmm. it's not even. And most of those patients are multi, multi, multi disordered in terms of also having terrible mood disorders, terrible by uh, either bipolar disorder or borderline personality disorder, all kinds of things going on concurrently. So, mm-hmm. in my experience, maybe one or two patients in a lifetime that anybody is going to see will wind up there. So now what is hospice care and when do you invoke it? In most cases, when you think about hospice for somebody with cancer, with COPD, it's weeks before they're gonna die, Mm -hmm. not more than that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's when it's clear to you and to the family and to the patient, they are dying. Mm 
-hmm. What does hospice care do? It gives comfort care, it gives dignity to the family. Because otherwise what happens, as I've seen it with several of my own patients, they go home and they die alone with their families and they're all ashamed. And it's the shame and the humiliation of the inevitable of the inevitability of death mm -hmm. that is distressing and unnecessary. So mm -hmm. one of the things that you get with hospice care, and you know, it's just making somebody comfortable, inviting the family in, saying they're gonna die. Do you want to say goodbye? Do you want to sing songs? Do you want to have a family meal? Do you want to have a celebration of life before they die, tell them we love them. That's what, that's what hospice is about. It's helping people to die with dignity. And what occurs to me is that if you don't die with dignity, as you do with anorexia nervosa, you die with indignity. Mm -hmm. And then you really leave families with a history of furtive shame, humiliation. I can't really talk about it. Whereas if you honor the fact that somebody struggled with a disease like anorexia nervosa, and they're going to die of it, they told you they're gonna die of it, they can't help themselves. And why are we blind to that? Why can't we as physicians and clinicians accept the reality of death? It's been around forever, everybody's gonna die. I think you posed the question I wanna pick up on. Um, what's the big deal? You co-authored an article that references, that puts forward some preliminary criteria for defining terminal anorexia nervosa. And it has created quite a controversy in the field. So what is the big deal? Because like, to your point, if you listen to, if we listen, when we listen to our patients, they they know something. So when we listen to each other, we know something. So what is it that different people in this field know, which is putting, which is at odds that is creating mm -hmm. the controversy? Because people who are very troubled by the proposal of a uh, terminal uh, anorexia nervosa diagnosis yeah. know something about this field so what are people what is the controversy from your perspective i think the controversy is that in our criteria one of the things that we put as a the fourth uh, characteristic of the patients that we've seen is that they make it clear that they don't want us to do anything more mm -hmm. and i think that is hard to for clinicians to accept the fact that they're no longer um, part of the part of the solution. They're not, they, they don't have any more agents in determining a patient's outcome. And and there are many patients with who've had chronic anorexia nervosa also say that's a terrible word because I got better. I said sure you did. A lot of people with cancer get better. A lot of people with cancer don't get better. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, how do you honor the patients who say, I have had it and I will die? Is mm -hmm. that an honorable statement? Or is it something that you always have to take issue with and fight 
and fight in the courts and fight with the involuntary treatment and belabor the family and the patient who've already said, leave us alone. Mm-hmm. So a couple of things. Uh, in terms of course of illness, right, and defining terminal anorexia nervosa, it's, as you know, right, it's so complicated because the longer someone has anorexia nervosa, if we look at the population data, the longer we study a population that's had anorexia nervosa, the greater the percentage of people who will be recovered and the greater percentage of people who will succumb to anorexia nervosa, right? right? You have an increased rate of people who die from the disorder, increased rate of people who recover from the disorder over time. We don't have great data to tell us who's going to be on which which course. Mm -hmm. Recognizing that some people will follow one course, one some will follow another, and accepting that there's a point at which some patients will withdraw from treatment seems to me different from medical aid in dying. That yes, that's a, a further step. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm, I'm personally not advocating any medical aid in dying. That's not uh-huh. where I'm going at all with this. Uh-huh. I'm just saying that there are people who die of their illness and that we ought to allow them to access hospice care mm-hmm. and help them and their families die with dignity uh-huh. to go through this process because they are going to die. And I think that for clinicians to withdraw from them at that point, or for them to feel that they have to withdraw from their clinicians at that point because the clinicians can't take it, or are in total disagreement with what they're doing, that is, that's a gap. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. So you're, as we think about drawing some boundaries around your big idea, you are really advocating for those of us who are in the field of caring for and treating individuals who have anorexia nervosa to have the capacity to be with them in a stage of illness when they may say, listen, I don't want to go back into the hospital to try to gain weight again. I don't want this super duper intervention or this intensive outpatient Mm -hmm. program. I want certain things that matter to me in life. And that's what palliative care is about. Yes. So, uh, and exactly. a, a harm reduction model yes. taken to um, that stage of the course of the disorder, the course of the illness. So you're not endorsing medical aid in dying. It happened that these patients pursued medical aid in dying, yes. which provoked you to really lean into this topic. Yes. And how do we define quote unquote, terminal anorexia nervosa. Um, I I think the medical aid in dying is a separate discussion worthy of a lot of consideration. So let me ask you, you've put forward uh, criteria for terminal anorexia nervosa. And these are, this is the first iteration. It's a, it's a, 
relatively audacious thing to do and to put it forward and say, here are some preliminary criteria and have lots of people swinging at it. Yeah. What, I would like people to do- sit down and to, and to talk about, all right, wait a second, when is palliative care suitable? Nobody has okay. done that yet. Yeah. So that's what, I, were, that's what I want to ask. So what are the, as we think as a field, um, we, COVID is a good example. What you're just saying is that COVID arrived on healthcare's doorstep, entered, permeated the medical systems, and we didn't have criteria for knowing the course of this illness. We didn't know what the markers were for when is somebody going to recover? When are they going to die? What should we be monitoring? What should we be giving? What should we be doing? And so it created an enormous burden on the healthcare providers. And we've seen the the moral injury that has Mm -hmm. occurred as a result. The very high percentage of healthcare providers who are stepping back. Mm-hmm. And so recognizing that when we don't have a clear understanding of a disorder, when we don't know who's going to recover, who's going to get worse, mm-hmm. when we have highly variable outcomes, mm-hmm. that there's a lot to learn to be confident that we know what we're seeing and where this person is going. Right. What are the what are the critical gaps of knowledge? Right. And what research should we be doing right. to improve this first attempt mm-hmm. at describing this stage of anorexia nervosa? What What's going to improve on this first try? Because there's no way that the first try of putting out the these criteria are going to be a hundred percent. So what do we need to know? We just said we said we're throwing this out. The field has to sit down and talk about it and develop guidelines and consensus criteria and definitions and all of that. So we're not saying we know anything. We're just saying here's the problem. Uh-huh. Uh, what I would suggest is getting 50 people who've been dealing with severe and enduring anorexia nervosa, 100 people, anybody who's ever really treated these patients, written about them, studied them, and I would write out. Or lived the experience. Yeah, or lived the experience. I would write out 10 or 20 vignettes, detailed case reports of people who meet our criteria descriptively and say, how would you handle this? Mm-hmm. What would you do right now? Because where consensus criteria for management have to be practical in what we're doing right now, it's not necessarily going to be the long-term research response. But so that, you know, what are the practice guidelines to handle the patients who um Jennifer Gaudiani, who was the first author of those papers, saw and dealt with and tried to manage, how would you do it? And really have them one-on-one interviewed at length by some really good qualitative researchers. Mm -hmm. And let the qualitative researchers do theme analysis and extract and find out 
basically, what would 50 people do? And it could be that 10 people would say, lock them up. And 40 people would say, you can't lock them. Mm-hmm. And I would, I would love to get that difference of opinion aired and quantified. And then we could tell the field, you know what? Uh, by a vote of five to four, people would do this. So was it a strategic error to write the paper around palliative care that was just three case studies of individuals that pursued medical aid in dying? Have we Are the issues conflated? They are conflated, yes. I think they are. Uh, I think that probably put an extreme issue on it that was maybe unnecessary, although I don't know if it would have gotten the same attention. Not not that we're intention seekers at all. Um, I thought that the cases were true and dramatic. Mm-hmm. So then the, case, the, the issue is if you have a true and dramatic story, um, is it something that shouldn't be put forward? The, 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 the second author of the paper, uh, Alyssa Bogertz, who died of anorexia nervosa a week after I met her and spoke to her and talked to her family, um, was a research director in pediatrics at Stanford. She was a really smart, experienced person who had had uh, eating disorder since she was 13. And she had been to all of the good programs and she had been around the bush and this is where she came out. She said, I can't do this anymore. And she had asked for the medical aid and dying. She knew it was around. I mean, it was around in California. Her sister is a palliative care physician who in pediatrics who had to get her head around this whole thing. A father is a retired physician, professor, medical school professor. I mean, this is a really informed, smart family. And she had been working with Jennifer. Uh, she had been in and out of care in Colorado and in California, in California and elsewhere. And this is what she had asked for and wanted. I, that's a very compelling, interesting story in itself. Mm-hmm. And the question is, all right, if you were her doctor, what would you do? How would you honor her? Mm-hmm. How would you respect her? Mm-hmm. She, she never took the pills for medical aid in dying because she died before she did it. Mm-hmm. But she had them. Mm-hmm. Had she wanted that. Had, and she was, in fact, planning to, from, from what Jennifer tells me, take them later in the week. Mm-hmm. She never got there. Mm-hmm. I mean, so- Powerful story. Powerful, powerful story. Really, really hard um, on the heart, challenging to the mind. And again, uh, I would ask all of these experts, everybody in the field saying, she's your patient. Mm-hmm. What would you do? Mm-hmm. How will you take care of her? Mm-hmm. How will you honor her and respect her and her family and help everybody to deal with this. And I can promise you that the conversation that I had with them and with everybody, isn't there anything else? Have you tried this? You know, I mean, mm-hmm. mushrooms, you know, ketamine, whatever, LSD. Mm-hmm. 
isn't there something else we could figure out here? Mm-hmm. And she said, this is, this is where I'm going. Mm-hmm. So I think your big idea also, Joel, brings to the fore the, the tension that exists across all of healthcare, which is no matter what condition you're treating, your knowledge is limited. Mm-hmm. And as a researcher, the the opportunity, the challenge, the burden is to advance our knowledge of mm-hmm. this condition in some aspect, whether it's the etiology or the treatment of this condition. As a clinician, you've got to decide what to do today yes. based on the knowledge that we have today. And that tension between incomplete knowledge and clinical care exists across the board, but is especially pronounced in mental health and especially pronounced in a condition like anorexia nervosa, where there's so much we don't understand. So it's a high, a high, high risk space to be in, in terms of not knowing and needing to act. Mm -hmm. And so I really appreciate your openness and invitation and challenge to all of us in the field to say, so how do we build our knowledge to Mm -hmm. better, to improve on the criteria that you have put forward as a preliminary starting point? Because we need to, we need better answers. So we need to ask these questions because and part of why we need better answers practically is to um, authorize treatment. Because in order to get palliative care, in order to get hospice care, to have your insurance pay for it, I mean, really pragmatic, to have Medicare pay for your care you have to meet criteria. Mm -hmm. And the idea of the terminal criteria is that's the word that they use to access hospice care. Mm -hmm. That's where the word came from. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, there's a difference between palliative care and hospice care. So we need to also distinguish, um, you know, that's another layer of complexity and another really important distinction. So what you've raised for us with your big idea is that there are a lot of big questions oh, yes. <laughs> and a lot of big issues. And it's an invitation for the field not to run away from these issues, mm-hmm. but to really take them on thoughtfully, get together, think about them, say, this is what we know right now. This is what we would do right now with our limited knowledge. Because mm-hmm. recognizing that we have to do something uh, and this is where we would go for future research. Mm-hmm. So on that, if you project ahead five years, mm-hmm. what, what would you hope, what questions would you hope we have better answers to that would improve on these preliminary criteria that you uh, and colleagues put yeah. forward? Uh, what, what I would like to, what would be wonderful is if we, in the next five years, a group would get together with enough experience and authority 
having wrestled with these things, to be able to write a consensus article that would come out in the International Journal and say, internationally, this is basically what we think the field um, should do to approach patients with these characteristics. And the characteristics include having been ill for a long time, having tried all kinds of treatment, and now not agreeing to go for recovery-oriented care because it hasn't worked for them. And we would say that for patients with those criteria, these are suitable ways of caring for them. And should it happen that they seem to be approaching death, and are unwilling to take the medical steps that might um, save them for a couple of months, then we should authorize hospice to take care of them at the end of life. So something along those lines. Joel, you have been pushing big ideas in the field for a long time, and you're really putting a challenge out to the community of of professionals, of researchers, clinicians, and people with lived experience to lean in and speak of their experience, whether it's living with a serious and enduring disorder of anorexia nervosa or working with individuals and caring for individuals in this field. Uh, Uh, One more thing, I'd say in terms of including people with lived experience, I would include the families of people who died of anorexia nervosa. They should not be neglected because they should have a voice also about what it was like for them to go having to be with their own uh, family member dying of this when they felt that the caregivers around them were sort of leaving them to their own devices or not staying with them through that experience. That's another lived experience, I think, that matters a great deal here. Mm -hmm. Very important. Thank you. Thank you for continuing to challenge us. Uh, I know, and I've referenced it as we've talked today, that it's a highly controversial topic. I appreciate the distinction that you're, you're drawing here around your big idea of leaning into palliative care, developing guidelines around understanding palliative care and hospice care as distinct from the discussion around medical aid and dying. Thank you for making that very specific. Thank you for your contributions to the field over so many years and your continuing uh, efforts to help us do better learn more and care for those who suffer from this very serious disorder. Thank Thank you. you.